Blog Talk Radio. This is our common ground, alternative activists, empowerment, talk radio, speaking truth to power and ourselves. Who are you? You don't know. Don't tell me Negro, that's nothing. What were you before the white man named you a Negro? And where were you? And what did you have? What was yours? What language did you speak then? It speaks about what we didn't do. Amen. Then it speaks to us and the possibility for us as a future person. Because ultimately, our people's future resides on what we do outside of the White House. African descent family, America failed. She put them in chains. The government put them on slave quarters, put them on action block, auction blocks, put them in cotton fields, put them in inferior schools, put them in substandard housing, put them in scientific experience, experiments, put them in the lowest paying jobs, put them outside the equal protection of the law, kept them out of their racist bastions of higher education, and locked them into positions of hopelessness and helplessness. The government gives them the drugs, builds bigger prisons, passes a three-strike law, and then wants us to sing God Bless America? No, no, no. Not God Bless America. God... Our Common Ground with Janice Graham. Our Common Ground, speaking truth to power and ourselves. Our Common Ground, a higher ground for discourse, discussion, solutions, and ideas. I'm Janice Graham, and I'll be listening for you. Talk, talk, that matters. Transforming, Transforming truth, truth to power. To power. One, broadcast One broadcast at a time. And now to Our Common Ground with Janice Graham. Just like all the conservative Republicans, they say we're conservatives. Conservative is a cold word for anti-black. It started as a cold word for anti-black. Conservatism comes from the word, the root word, to conserve. To conserve means to hold on to what one's got. Or as our mother used to say, that you who ain't got ain't going to get. That's what conservatism means. So you hear white folks bragging about their conservatives. What they're saying is that you all who ain't got, you ain't going to get. Now, we as black folk have never had anything. But you still have a lot of silly blacks running around the country calling themselves black conservatives. I want to ask them, what in the world are you conserving? <laughs> what are you trying to conserve? Slavery, Jim Crow segregation, poverty, low-income housing, food stamps, welfare. What are you conserving, fool? But Dr. Ass, you know what I'm saying. I'm a conservative. And so, so right now they're all trying to be, get away from blackness. Now Obama now, see, he's in a dilemma. 
And that's why I would support him. Because he cannot go to his base. Hillary can go to her base. Hillary can appeal to whites. And she can promise things to whites. Hillary can appeal to her gender. And she can promise things to her gender, to women and women's issues. Hillary can pick surrogates, either some conservative whites or some Sambo blacks, to put them out there to go represent her. And you all got a lot of local ones around here. Now, see, I didn't say that. So they, and they can go out there and represent her and push her opinion and make promises. Obama can't make any promises. He cannot go to the black community and say, if y'all vote for me, I'll do something for you. He cannot practice the basic premise of politics, which is called quid pro quo, something for something. One hand washes the other. Obama can't even practice politics in its truest sense. What he must do now is be a political albino. He must disengage himself from his color and be as white as snow. And he, had, and he can't pick, pick any blacks to go out and represent him. He can't pick, and I know a lot of black nationalists, he can't pick any black nationalists and say, hey, I'm going to solve some of these problems. that uh, black America is not waking up in the way in which we should. We've got a spiritual rot and a moral cowardice in our neoliberal black political class and our neoliberal black intelligentsia who don't want to tell the truth about the underside of the Hillary Clinton campaign. And the underside really has to do with not just the Clinton machine and all of its corruptions and so forth, but more importantly, the policies, the trade policies, the president mass incarceration regime, the, de 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 deregulating of the banks and so forth. But Brother Bernie's hitting his head on. It's difficult for Hillary to somehow act as if she's such a, a populist since they're gone. But I think given the class issues that Brother Bernie and, and all of us are trying to push, in Michigan, the class issues make a big difference. It's generational and it's ideological, and it's a beautiful thing to see. I think one thing is that uh, we seem to put a lot of blame on Hillary for things that uh, Bill Clinton did in the Clinton administration, which I don't think is right. Uh, I think the other thing, too, is that I know that Bernie's got a very strong message. I respect him very much for his message that he's bringing about the inequality in our economic system. But Bernie knows, since he's been in the Congress for 26 years, that we also have to have a Congress to be able to bring to fruition uh, some of the great ideas that he's put forth. I, I do believe that Hillary Clinton, I do have a lot of faith in her. I think she's got the skills, she's got the wisdom, uh, you know, she's got the experience uh, to make things happen. Uh, when we compare the records of the two candidates, uh, we see that uh, Hillary Clinton's record is much, much stronger than Bernie Sanders is. And I do believe that uh, what Bernie is saying and what he wants to happen, and I, I believe in many, many of the ideas that, that he's put forth, uh, but I think it will take time and we've got to really elect a good Congress. You know, people forget 
and, and I know the Affordable Care Act uh, that uh, would not pass the Congress, it only passed with four or five votes, even though we had a 25 uh, Democratic majority at that time. And uh, I, I have to say that in terms of the Latino community, we are completely in support of Hillary, simply because Bernie just hasn't been there uh, for the Latino community. You know, he had a really good opportunity in 2007. Uh, when Senator Ted Kennedy, uh, Hillary Clinton, Senator Durbin from Illinois, when they proposed uh, a good uh, uh, immigration reform bill, and we had all of the momentum behind us at that time because we had had all of these marches all over the country for immigration reform, and Bernie, unfortunately, uh, came out against that bill, and, and that was very uh, sad that he did that. And what he has said repeatedly is that he came out against the bill because it had the guest worker program in it. Well, wait a minute. When we passed the amnesty bill in 1986, we had guest workers in that bill with protections, protections for the farm workers, protections for the domestic workers. The bill that he voted on in 2013 also had the guest worker program in it. So I think he just wasn't paying attention at that time. And I think we, we lost a, a great opportunity. So again, I, I, I believe in Bernie's message. I think we can make it happen. I think it's going to have to be an evolution rather than a revolution. Listening to Our Common Ground with Janice Graham, transforming truth to power, one broadcast at a time. This is the remix. The Jeeps pump this new remix. Uh huh. This is the remix. Tonight on Our Common Ground, joining us one more time in the remix, Yvette Carnell of BreakingBrown.com. And Pascal Reber of the Black Agenda Report. Flashback. America makes it clear again. I'm Janice Graham. The question tonight on Open Mic Saturday Night, just what are the black people supposed to do? This is the remix. And this I'll is the be remix. listening for you. This is the remix. And now, Janice Graham. And good evening, and thank you for being here with us on Our Common Ground. It is a place where black truth takes sanctuary. Thank you for being with us. And for those of you who are listening on various different devices, you can join us in our open chat room at blogtalkradio.com backslash OCG. As we enter into the wee hours prior to the first day of spring, we come to our common ground with the mo- inside the most vitriolic, hate-filled, racist discourse in American politics. And we thank you for your patience in all of that. America is sticking all of its racial hatred at the feet of Donald Trump. Little Marco has gone the way of, he says he's not coming back. Uh, I don't believe that. He's an empty suit. That's the only place for him to be. And before we get started tonight with uh, my co-hosts, Yvette Carnell of the of BreakingBrown.com and Pascal Robert of the Black Agenda Report. You know them. They've been here a lot lately because they have a lot of insight 
understanding and things to say about the body politics of both black politics and of American politics. And they'll be joining me just shortly. But before we begin, I do want to say thanks to India Declare of the I Declare show who held down the mic and let it burn last Saturday night on my behalf, sitting in for me, and I am so grateful and thankful, and she carried it. I know you know that she carried it. She was with Ruby Sales of the Stop Hands Off Our Children, Stop the Violence, campaign, which happened this weekend in Washington, D.C., and we'll be talking a little bit more about that uh, later in the program. But thanks to India, and it was a real treat to be able to hear that dialogue. It was like every five minutes there were chills and hair-raising conversation and discussion about who we are as a people, who we are to our children. Did you hear Ruby Sales say, how and what are we if we do not love our children enough to protect them? I heard another, you know I listen to a lot of talk radio. I listen to talk radio all day, uh, every day. Uh, It's an addiction, yes. Uh, And I, I heard... Another talk show host who I have a lot of of admiration for have a discussion with one of her co-hosts and what they were saying about parents, black parents and black children, that we have to be so very careful about what we say to them. Uh, it was in relationship to an interview with uh, Stephen Smith, the sportcaster, who talked about how his parents talked to him very badly to the point that it was just verbal abuse. And he has lived with that all of his life. And part of what forms some of the things and mistakes that he makes, uh, some of the anger that he has, comes from that. And he's a 50-something-year-old man. So let's, let's take that seriously Uh, Let's let that be part of the principles of being part of and standing on our common ground. So thanks a lot, India Declare, and I hope all of you will join India every Tuesday night at 9 p.m. where she is real raw and right now. Tonight on Our Common Ground, we're going to have these two people take over. Uh, I apologize. I have had... um, Uh, an illness that has taken away my ability to stop coughing and to breathe breathe and talk at the same time, (laughs) if you can imagine that. We also are so grateful to have Alpho of the Alpho Show in our audience tonight and hope he is well. We haven't had a chance to talk to him this weekend, but we'll do our, our, our Sunday morning talk, as we always do. So joining us tonight is... You know them, Yvette Carnell of BreakingBrown.com and Pascal Robert of the Black Agenda Report, The Thought Merchant. Hey, guys, thanks for joining us tonight. Thanks for having us. How are you, Janice? 
Well, you all can take over because you know, you know, you're not guest tonight. You're, 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 you're actually the host tonight. <laughs> but there's, I, I want to get my stuff in before you all get started because then I know I won't get a word ed- edgewise. And we're going to start taking calls around 10:45. So for those of you who want to get in on this, how America is making it clear again, and what they're making clear. Our number is 347-838-9852. And don't forget to subscribe to BreakingBrown.com and the Black Agenda Report. And Pascal Robert can also be read at his blog site, which is The Thought Merchant. So you've got all that. We cannot say as a community we don't have the resources. We don't have the information available to us. The other thing I want to say to you all, you know, on some of these cold winter nights, you can have an Our Common Ground party at your house. Everybody can listen right on the same computer or device and um, join in from there. We have got to support um, vital information sharing, and that's what part of what our common ground is all about. Okay, you guys, I want to talk about a couple of things. Uh, One is, um, I want to tell you something. Can I tell you a secret? I'm going to tell you a secret. I'm going to tell you a secret (laughs) with this. Okay, here's my secret. Um, President Obama nominated um, Judge Merrick Garland what circuit is he? I don't I don't remember what circuit he is, but anyway. DC. Okay, DC circuit. And I heard through the grapevine. I mean, everybody's all upset about this nomination, and then there are people who believe that the nomination will never be heard by the Senate in during this administration. Um <coughs> There are other people who are saying, see what I'm talking about? There are other people who I'm saying, if I worked in a real radio station, the technician over there was supposed to hit the cough button. Okay, anyway, um, I heard through the grapevine, and it's a pretty reliable grapevine, that President Obama made a backroom deal on Merrick Garland on this nomination. And I heard that somewhere around Wednesday, that the deal was if he nominated Merrick Garland, then the Senate may open the way to a hearing. Then on yesterday, this is not the secret, on yesterday, Nina Totenberg, who's a pretty reputable reporter, reported on NPR about this black backroom deal. I would like to hear you all talk about that. The other thing is that black women in this country gave 97% of their vote uh, to Barack Obama. And we can round it all off and say in both elections. And they're mad as Mama D. And at the same time, they're making excuses. 
I don't get it. Um, wouldn't it be more prudent of this president to have nominated someone for which there would be a lot of argument about, and that and that nominee would be a black female, and that would bring out the base for Hillary, who he has by mistake announced he's supporting. That's my second question. My third question that I want you to cover um, is about the Anita Alvarez in Chicago, the prosecutor in Chicago, and Tim Genty in Kawa, Ohio, Tamir Rice, prosecutor, who failed miserably. The The people I saw out in the street on this seemed to be just regular community people who got organized by mistake. But all of the credit is going to the Black Lives Matter movement, and I'm kind of curious about that. Uh, And I'm going to throw this other thing in. We know that Donald Trump is a narcissistic fool. We know that Cruz is a belligerent, narcissistic fool who graduated from Harvard and is a senator. Which one of those people are more dangerous, and if any of them are as or more dangerous than Hillary Clinton? And what is the problem with Bernie Sanders? Why can't he seem to get it together in his organizing in the black community? And then I'll also talk about the return of Emerge Magazine. So you got the mic, guys, Pascal Robert and Yvette Cornell, and we're happy about it. <laughs> Yvette, you want to start first? <laughs> that, was a, that was a lot. That was a lot, Jen. That was a lot. Um, that, was, that was a hefty <laughs> list there. I, regarding regarding the, the 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 Garland, I think that was your first thing. The, the Garland, uh, the backroom deal that happened in terms of Obama um, bringing him to the forefront. I, I don't even know how much of a of a of a backroom deal it was. I, I mean, they've they've been telling Obama for for however many years that if you appoint this guy, like he'll he'll get easy approval. So it may have been that some people just came to him and reiterated that. Listen, if you want us to do this, you bring us the guy that we've been telling you about. You know, Republicans have been saying this for one time, for a long time. Like he's somebody that we wouldn't have any trouble approving. And I think, as opposed to like the thing people have to understand about Barack Obama is that he's probably the most he's the most risk averse president that that I've ever witnessed. He he doesn't he doesn't like to go into the fray. So the idea that he would put up a fight. You know, and put up a put up a black female, and put up a fight. You know, that would yield Hillary Clinton. You know, some dividends. He doesn't want that fight. He wants he wants to be seen as like this adult in the room who is negotiating and doing the right thing and isn't playing politics. And I think one of the things that I've always said is just, is just like that's that's really not the way politics works. And that's that's always been one of my main criticisms of Obama, is that he doesn't really have he doesn't really have he doesn't really have the internal fortitude. To be in politics, I mean, he should. Obama's rightful place wouldn't even be on the Supreme Court. It would be as like White House Counsel, White House General Counsel. He's not. I don't. I've always said he's not built for this. So he's not built to like go out there, use the bully bullpit, put a black woman up. You know, she might. She probably won't get. She probably won't get in. 
but there's going to be so much energy. Like Pascal pointed this out when it, when the, when, the number, when when Scalia first died, there'd be so much energy around rallying around her that black people go out and vote for for Hillary Clinton just to make sure that Hillary Clinton gets in and puts this and puts the black woman, you know, in the Supreme Court. But he doesn't want to fight that fight. He doesn't want to fight any fight. And I'm not saying that, you know, I know he's a neoliberal. I know he's a guy that, that really isn't working on behalf of the people anyway. But even if it's something he really believes in, he, he's a very risk-averse person. That's a, that's a pretty good analysis, and I think I agree with it generally. But to me, there are certain things that really need to be recognized. That First of all, Merrick Garland, it was a Clinton appointee to the federal bench. You know, he's also out of Harvard Law School, graduated summa cum laude from Harvard undergrad. Uh, he is from Chicago. So uh, we have to realize that he comes out of the same kind of elite uh, academic uh, uh, world that Obama was traveling in the Chicago days as well. Uh, also, the fact that he was a Clinton appointee may be sending a kind of dog whistle to Hillary that this is a guy that you might want to carry through just in case he doesn't get through with me as well because your husband put him on the bench. In terms of the backroom deal, I think the backroom deal might have been possible, but I also agree with the vet that it didn't even necessarily have to be go that far because Orrin Hatch had already stated that you know if Obama had nominated someone like Merrick Garland, he would at least have to consider him seriously, and that's exactly what Obama did. Now, the thing about Merrick Garland for me, which is more important, is less about the uh, you know the the political optics for Obama, is that what does this mean for the for communities of color, and and uh, you know just just people who are just as activists in the black community. Merrick Garner is what I would call a hawk on something that is very important to black people on criminal justice. He is a very very strong hardcore prosecutor. He is he is not someone who is particularly uh, a believer in in a more uh, you know just liberal understanding of the criminal justice constitutional jurisprudence. As a matter of fact, on the day he was nominated, the White House tweeted on their Twitter page that this is a guy who wouldn't let somebody off for a technicality. So basically, this the White House with a black president is sending out a message that you know Merrick Garland will lock Negroes up no matter what. I mean, this is not exactly the kind of message you want to be sending in a Supreme Court nominee in the age of mass incarceration and Black Lives Matter. So to me, the, the fact that this is, the, this is the, 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 the considered candidate for the Supreme Court, to me, is a telegraphing message coming out of the Obama administration and maybe the power elite that once this election is over, all of this mass incarceration, police brutality, claptrap that you Negroes are all energized about, that is out the window. And we're going back to the bad old days of lock them up and throw away the key. So that's something that I have in the back of my mind. That I was thinking about is that not only is he picking, a, you know, picking a basically a centrist kind of triangulating, you know, neoliberal privatizing type of judge, but he picked a judge who is a major, major, you know, you know, ball buster when it comes to Guantanamo Bay and on criminal justice, uh, criminal justice reform. This guy is a was a federal prosecutor. He has one of the worst records in terms of siding with defendants. On the, on the on the federal bench of any of any judge, and I think in 13 years on the bench, he only sided with defendants maybe something like 10 times when they were when they were going for federal appeals. So this is a man who has a pretty bad record. In terms of the other, there's some other politics around this that shows me that this actually might have been 
the kind of uh, play that the power elites or the ruling class wanted. I don't even know if you guys saw this, but today, John Kasich, who is the Republican establishment candidate for president, who just won the Ohio primary, who stopped who stopped uh, Donald Trump in Ohio, John Kasich said he would have considered nominating Merrick Garland. I'm reading this today. This is in CBS, uh, CBS News right now. John Kasich, I'd consider nominating Merrick Garland, Merrick Garland to the Supreme Court. Now, that's a big statement because John Kasich is pretty much the last establishment Republican candidate running for president right now. What does that but let mean? Me stop that you. Let me stop you right let me stop you right on that, Pascal. One of the things, John Kasich is the worst politician that ever came down the pike, GOP or DNC. And one of the reasons that people are making a mistake, people are making a mistake by seeing him as reasonable, but it's up against the landscape of Lil Marco, Trump, and all the rest of them clowns that were on the stage. I absolutely agree I with just, you. I, think I just wanted to make I absolutely that agree point. with you that John Kasich, he telegraphs horribly. He is in, he is in a politically inarticulate. He is not eloquent. He is not compelling. He has actually, if he had any of those skills, he should be the natural heir apparent to the Republican nomination. But because he's so so politically milquetoast, he's getting destroyed by everyone else. But yet this is a guy, I think, who has the political temperament and resume that will be most likely to be able to post a challenge, pose a challenge to Hillary because he's considered a moderate. He actually won his reelection bid with 26% black support in Ohio. He has, you know, considered, he's considered to have a good economic record in Ohio, and he doesn't come off as a, you know, a right-wing firebrand. But he is so absolutely politically bland and totally uninteresting, and his 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 skill at really uh, retail politics strikes me as to be rather horrible. That I can understand why he's barely barely uh, barely functioning, and he you know by the by the grace of God he was able to win Ohio. But I do <laughs> believe that because he is governor of Ohio and all the other things I said, he is probably going to be the likely VP pick because he brings in a crucial state. He he wouldn't be the, he wouldn't be the first he wouldn't be the first worthless you know a totally unappealing VP pick either that's you know the, he he's in a, he's one of a long line. Oh, absolutely, but, but you know, like I said, you know that was the the demographics in terms of the the logistics and demographics of what he offers in terms of the state of of Ohio, in my opinion, makes John Kasich and I've been saying this for a while that Kasich I thought Kasich would have been the the best nominee in terms of what he had to offer in terms of his political resume. But he is just so uh, bland and just absolutely unappealing. He's the only guy that makes Jeb Bush even look remotely exciting is John Kasich. And it's just his, sadly, he just does not have the skill to really uh, energize any base, Republican or otherwise. But I do believe that because of what he does offer in terms of the state of Ohio, that he's going to be somebody's VP pick and probably will be Trump's. Well, maybe Yvette can explain to us on this Garland nomination why on on the right hand we have yeah. all of these black women uh, academics and 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 lawyers. <laughs> I mean Barbara Arnwine, who is my friend and who is an our common ground voice, 
and has been on this program many times, she's out there beating the bushes uh, and the and the and the Congressional Black Caucus, and they're all pissed off at Obama. I mean, it takes seven years to get pissed off. I, I'm not sure, but on on one hand. They are absolutely enraged by this nomination because it wasn't a black woman. They're saying that it was the time, it was it was our time. But on the other hand, they're making all of these grandiose explanations and analysis of who Garland is. I was I was just absolutely crazy and, and God bless him. Um, but in the Washington Post this morning, there was a, a story about how he they're starting the propaganda machine, how he um, tutors in Washington, D.C. public schools. Good. He is one who has been privileged. He is one for which he has had great success and achievement in this country, and he ought to be doing something worthwhile. So with that said, how is this happening? The schizophrenia is driving me nuts in the black community. I don't know what to make of it. Well, I, I, I think I think this is something that we've seen in the black community for a while, right? I mean, we saw this schizophrenia with, with Loretta Lynch. She wasn't where we necessarily wanted her to be in terms of crime policy, in terms of in terms of drugs, in terms of that sort of thing. She, you know, she's very aggressive in her her prosecutorial uh, posture. But we saw black black women come out. You know, she's a she's I think she's a Delta. You saw black women come out and said, you know, give her, you know, give her, give her the nod or whatever, because she's a black woman, regardless of what her principles are. And I mean, I don't I don't know if you all if you all saw this earlier today, but Merrick was Merrick was you know his his he actually was one of the one of the judges who kind of shielded the White House visitor laws from disclosure, basically saying that Obama has a freedom of information right to protect the visitor laws and he doesn't have to make them he doesn't have to open them up. So he is Obama's guy. He is the guy for the establishment. This is who he is. And so you have you have black people on one hand saying, you know, it was time, it's time for a woman. But then on the other hand it's like Obama deserves to have his nominee. Obama deserves, you know, for his nominee to be approved. I just want I just on this point, I just want to Ring the bell. I don't have a bell. They took my bell away. The 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 noise technician quit. But um, ring the bell that this is another, yet another way in which they are telling us that black lives don't matter. We have no place. But, but, black, but black presidents do. Black lives, that's, that's, been, that's been the whole, that, that has been what we've lived What's with, with your phone, Yvette? You're 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 kind of like okay. Keep going. Can you hear me now? Okay, but yeah. I don't. The, the thing about it is, it's we have lived through this where the where what matters most is the black presidency. What matters most is the black man in the White House, and black lives haven't mattered. You know, you have you've had people. It, I would actually make the case that black lives have mattered less under the Obama administration because. We have used all of our political capital to insulate him from criticism as opposed to using that capital to try to get things, you know, to benefit the material well-being of black people. So I'm I'm not at all surprised that black lives aren't mattering right now. Well, it's a chess game. Don't you, don't you guys realize we're playing chess? We're invested in Obama's wonderful gambit. We're being, being with... beaten over the head with the chess board. <laughs> 
Well, it's, the thing that's fascinating for me is that watching people, particularly educated, professional uh, black folk who are, you know, I happen to you know know quite a, a few a few of those who and are you so invested. One of them. <laughs> I, I, I guess you could say. <laughs> who, who are so? You see what he's doing? <laughs> who happen to be saying things like it was a brilliant move? It was a chess move. It was wonderful. We we shouldn't complain. We didn't do anything to, to try to get him to get a you know it, it, to the extent to which I'm I see these folk willing to vest in the the, the pseudo gamesmanship of the president as opposed to advocating for their own interest is incredible. And I've seen this happen over and over again when Obama, you know, basically changed the plus loan program that damaged HBCUs to the point where it caused Howard University to lose some of its uh of its of its uh um, bond rating. Uh I would hear black people say, Well, you know, these HBCUs, you know, they, they, they have a mismanagement problem or when he when he shut down the regional offices of the Minority Business Development Association, they like, well, we know we don't I mean, you know, we don't you know, black businesses aren't doing that well anyway. Every time there is some kind of move mm-hmm. or triangulation or particular policy initiative from this president, from the sequester, from cutting eight billion dollars in food stamps, from trying to gut social security the first thing I find is I find professional, you know, acolytes of Obama, supporters of him, particularly of the black professional cohort, always saying, well, you know, you have to understand the, the, the broader politics. Why exactly are you trying to defend the president who was making policy initiatives that are working against your interests, but giving him excuses and trying to make it seem he's involved in some kind of grander real politic? This is absurd. I don't understand. I mean, I, I, I got to give credit to the Latino community for not doing this because it's to the point now where they're literally heckling Obama for his det- detainment policy of detaining more uh, immigrants, illegal, uh, uh, undocumented workers than any other president in modern history. They actually took him to task in, in the re-election in 2012, and they're taking him to task now. They have not been the community that is sitting back and saying, "Well, he has to do this because he can't look like he's fake." No, they're not playing that role. But yet people in the black community, particularly our more educated professionals, are always seeking for a reason to give some type of excuse or some kind of rationalization and some kind of real politique to why the president is doing these things. And this, again, demonstrates how this vapid, aspirational identity politics of black faces in high places has completely neutralized the black community. And I think you guys saw that piece that I wrote about class and the politics of black America in the Obama age, about how this whole con game, this charade, this Ivy League Wall Street propagandized president in a time in which basically wealth is being transferred upward to the 1%, you know, we have, you know, the wealth gap between blacks and whites at the highest level, the Voting Rights Act is gutted, affirmative action is on the chopping block, black child poverty is the highest in 40 years, and black people are sitting down, clapping their hands and saying, yes, we can, yes, we can, open change, and we're getting, you know, we're getting backstabbed, frontstabbed, sidestabbed, left and right, and this is not accidental. That were, to, I, I, we need to be, we understand what the function of having this black privatizing neoliberal pro Wall Street blackface in the White House at this particular juncture of American capitalism. What was the utility to the ruling class, to the power elite of having black people completely neutralized at this juncture when right now in America every segment of America is rebelling? 
even white folk are rebelling on the right and on the left except black people who are choosing the status quo most militaristic pro-Wall Street branch of the Democratic Party that everyone else is rebelling against. But yet black people who used to be the vanguard of movements in this country are lagging behind. What does that say about the effect of Obamaism on the black political psyche? That's the, that's the most important question I think we need to be asking right now today. Any thoughts? Why don't you tell us how you feel about Barack Obama? <laughs> <laughs> um, okay, here is here is, but but you know one of the things too we have to recognize is that, and I'm probably the oldest person in the room, but one of the things that we have to recognize that identity politics was created as a way of quieting the civil rights and the black power movement in the 60s. That's very well, true. Well, that's, that's, why, that's why what you're going to have, and, I, I, you know, Pascal and I have talked about this, but what you're going to have going forward you know, you're not going to have it, and this is why I initially said I wasn't going to support anyone, and then I, I, I voted for Bernie Sanders because because of the class-based analysis. Because what we need in terms of what we need right now is redistribution. What you're going to have now, instead of talking about how poor black people are or, or, or how, how how we're falling below, you know, how we're falling between the cracks, what you're going to have now is, is Hillary Clinton talking about you know anti-racism, and Hillary Clinton is going to be going around talking about how awful it is that these police officers. You know, don't you know have shot have shot black kids, and how awful it is that white people don't recognize you know you know how the black people are fully human, and, and that we need to change hearts and minds. And you're going to have more of that sort of more of that sort of anti-racism. You're not going to have policies. You're not going to have a movement to improve the lives of, of black people on the ground. You're not going to have a movement to improve the material condition. She's going to you know sort of coddle us and do little things you know to make us feel good. But, and so what? And, and that's what. And, and, I, and I said it. I said it a while ago. Like black people are picking a national therapist. We're not picking. We're not picking a politician to to deal with to deal with our economic issues. We're picking a therapist because this person makes us feel good. This person is familiar to us. This person we know Hillary Clinton, or we feel like we do because she was around. You know, in the nineties with Bill Clinton. So we're picking based on our own familiarity and based on our own fear of Trump. We're not picking based on someone who put who will put in force, you know, policies that materially at the end of the day make sure that maybe we have more money in our pockets or we have access to health care or we have, you know, we have access to education. That's not what we're doing. And for me, that's a that's a politically immature that's a politically immature place to be in right now, especially when you consider the when you consider that like Pascal said, white people are rebelling right now. You have white working class people who are far better off economically than black people, and they still realize that something is wrong and this is not how they want to live, and they're still rebelling. And you have us who are picking the status quo. If anybody needs to be picking something other than the status quo, it needs to be us. Well, well one of the things that we are failing to do is we're failing to compare her 2008 candidacy to her 2016 candidacy. So very different because she is adopting the rhetoric of Bernie Sanders and Jill Stein. Jill Stein, by the way, is the presidential candidate for the Green Party, for those of you who do not know. So... um, 
it's a matter of, you know, one of the damn things I get so angry about is every time we come up on this, every time we come up on this, we don't recognize that these are the people, all of this crap that happened, all of the the the, the poverty that settled in, everything came on their watch. Senator Clinton, Secretary of State Clinton, uh, President Barack Obama. Uh, I mean, and, and 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 if we look at what the Bush administration did, how the Clinton administration adopted or in, invoked so much of what the Bush administration set in concrete to create the problems that our community faces now, and you have a candidate who has not admitted on her on her watch this stuff happened. On Bernie Sanders' watch, all of this happened. On Barack Obama's watch, all of this happened, and we have not called the Democratic National Committee to task on any of it, including this recent nomination. Well, I think the one thing that we have to realize, first in terms of the Democratic Party, and this is something that I mentioned on our, our program with Carl Nelson, is that we all are familiar with the Southern strategy that the Republican Party used in the early 1970s after the Civil Rights Movement and the Black Power era with Richard Nixon and how he basically pivoted to racial rhetoric to break up the New Deal Civil Rights Coalition. And what we know as the New Deal Civil Rights Coalition is that the white working class who were lifted out of poverty from FDR's New Deal and the civil rights laws that came about during Johnson created a coalition in the Democratic Party, which was called the New Deal Civil Rights Coalition. Basically, black folk who received the benefits of the Civil Rights Education Laws, the Voting Rights Act, the Civil Rights Act of 64, and the New Dealer beneficiaries of FDR's, you know, liberal liberal relations, uh, liberalization, and things of that, just social security, so off, so forth, created a coalition that became the new face of the Democratic Party toward the end of the 1960s. What Nixon did is that he basically created a means to get disaffected whites who were somewhat unhappy with some of the more uh, militant black power posturing in urban America, combined with their feel that feeling that black people have gotten too much, a reaction to the civil rights games, and he started to use rhetoric to peel them away from the Democratic Party and bring them into the Republican Party. That strategy was epitomized by Ronald Reagan using it by opening up his candidacy in Philadelphia and Mississippi and appealing to what became the Reagan Democrats, which is the, the New Deal portion of the New Deal uh, Civil Rights Coalition. So what that did is that it alienated blacks who were the civil rights portion of that coalition, and it took the New Deal part, who were loyal Democrats, who were white poor, who were elevated to the middle class through the, the New Deal that FDR implemented, and it brought them into the Republican Party. What many black people do not know is that Bill Clinton's rise to the White House in 92 is premised on replicating the new the southern strategy in the democratic party janice you old enough to remember that when clinton ran in 92 this is on the heels of jesse jackson in 88 beating al gore in south carolina and winning 11 states in the democratic primary and the democratic and the dlc being created to alienate the democratic party from 
the issues of the black community. People don't know that these superdelegates that we talk about, the superdelegates were created to neutralize the political power that Jesse Jackson had accumulated in the Democratic primary in 88. It was a means of neutralizing both progressive white and black voices from the ability to garner their numbers in the Democratic Party. So we have to understand that the Democratic Party literally changed its primary election structure, front-loading Southern states in Super Tuesday to alienate political power of black people. Bill Clinton in 92 runs on a very anti-black platform, Sister Soldier, Jesse Jackson, so on and the like, basically trying to tell the Democrats that in the face of Ronald Reagan's political success. We cannot spend time about the issues and problems of these Negroes. We need to appeal to working class whites. So we have to understand that the Clintons are coming out of Arkansas, one of the most anti-black states in the South, with one of the worst records there. Rudy, uh, Ricky Ray Rector, don't forget the guy he see, he basically goes down to to oversee his uh, his uh, extermination with a guy who he, he was basically you know his, he was brain dead, he was not able to function, and Clinton's like you know execute this guy when he's still running for president. The Clintons he came are running off the campaign trail to do that. Yes, exactly. So, so the point I'm saying is that many black people don't realize is that Clinton comes to office in '92 off of an anti-black campaign uh, position. And he comes into the White House by the grace of the, of the third-party candidate who was Ross Perot. Let's make it clear, if Ross Perot did not run in 92, Bill Clinton would not be president. So that strategy didn't even really get him into the White House. It was the fact that Ross Perot ran as the third party. He comes into the White House, and only out of the fear of the rise of the reactionary right under Newt Gingrich do black people run to Bill Clinton and say, save us, save us from the, these crazy Republicans. The same way now they're running to Hillary saying, save us, save us from Trump. And that's what becomes Bill Clinton. Becomes known as you know the friend of black people. He plays the saxophone on Arsenio Hall, and Negroes fall for the okie doke. But this is a man whose whole presidency, from the rise of the DLC to Sister Soldier to talking about the need to get away from these issues and concentrating on the white working class, his whole trajectory in rising in politics. And Corey Robin has a great piece in Salon.com as well as Donna Merck, who are two academics who've written great pieces. One in the one in the New Yorker and one in Salon, explaining how Clinton rose to power in his first term election on an anti-black platform. And yet this is the political family that we are now investing our support in to back having his wife, who was a very strong part of that strategy, again in 2016. Now, we have to ask why, is this, why, why this has happened. So we can say, well, black people are just, you know, are black people dumb or they're stupid? I think it's more sophisticated than that. What, and I know it is. I think we all do. We have to call a spade a spade. What is going on is that the political establishment in the black community, the black misleadership class is more than just elected officials. That means that you have your membership organizations in, your black, in the black community, fraternities, sororities, Freemasons, the links, the guilds, all of these organizations, the black churches, HBCU presidents, all of these things create an ideological echo chamber that we all know in the black community that dictate the political discourse and acceptable choices that exist in the black community. These people are getting patronage promises from the Clinton machine. One thing the Clintons are able to 
do very well with the black community is hand out fat, or fat back and pork chops and biscuits. And these Negroes are in a position where they are setting themselves up to get the patronage that they are looking forward to when Hillary gets in the White House to give them their little slice of the table on the backs of the black poor and working class who are going to get ground to powder. And unfortunately, Bernie Sanders, because he's not tied to Wall Street, doesn't have the largesse to dole out that fat back. And that's really what's going on here to a large extent, is that the black political establishment, the black misleadership class, as we call it, the black, and, and we call it at the um, uh, Black Agenda Report, and all of its various acolytes, the media arm, and so on and so forth, are collectively leveraging their power to back the Clintons, not only because ideologically they are simpatico with this neoliberal agenda, because many of them are, i.e. charter schools, i.e. privatization, and all that, but also because they want the patronage that they know will come down from a Clinton presidency, which is the one thing Bill Clinton did in order to keep black people, uh, you know, in his pocket. I'd like to hear your thoughts on that. I think that I I, I think that is just in terms of the timeline. It is just exactly where we are, and I know that uh, Yvette is going to have to leave us. And uh, Yvette wrote something this week at BreakingBrown.com that really opened it up for me. And she said, and and correct me if I'm I'm right, I'm wrong, Yvette, if I, if I got it wrong, that, you know, Hillary on one side, Bernie on the other side, neither of them fit. And Donald Trump is at the head articulating America as it is. So let fucking Rome burn. I hope you don't have any children in the in the room. I'm sorry. Let Rome burn. Yvette, talk. Well, well, I I I I did say I did say for me let Rome burn at this burn at this point. And I would like to add one quick thing to 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 what to what Pascal said in terms of in terms of providing context. I would I would agree with him. And I would actually say that I think Bill Clinton was more Pascal, successful. Pascal, we're getting at, fe- excuse me, Vet. Pascal, I know no you're walking around in a circle. We're getting feedback from your walking around. Sit. <laughs> okay, Vet. No, I said I said I agree with you in terms of in, in terms of, in terms of what happened. Um, in terms of, but I would say that I would say that you know the Clintons probably employed uh, the Southern strategy better than most Republicans. Um, I would also say that black people have this sort of nostalgic view of the Clinton years without understanding during that period, black salaries, black earnings, black income was 54% of white incomes by the end of the, by the end of the Clinton term. So this idea that, you know, I did so well, I was making so much money on the Clinton, that's not, that's just not true when you look at the data. And, you know, I don't even, you know, I don't even call the, I don't even call the, the black people at the top of the, the black food chain of the black elite anymore, because what you have to understand is that they don't, I call them black functionaries, the black misleadership functionaries, because they don't really have any power other than their, their proximity to white people who do have power, right? And, and I think you have to understand that they're not elite in any kind of, in any kind of way uh, on their own. They are only elite insofar as they can sway black people to help certain white candidates, and then they can get what, what, what Pascal said, part of that largesse. And so I think if you understand them in that context of not really having anything of their own that they run, that they control, I think you, I think you are, are, are sort of better apt to understand it. What I said about let Rome burn was basically there's no way you're going to get me to, to run scared from Trump. 
you know, and, and, and run into the arms of Hillary Clinton. I'm just not playing that game anymore uh, in, in terms of how I vote, in terms of how I encourage other people to vote. I'm just not doing that anymore because that's what we do, especially as black people. And they tell us, oh, this Trump is just so, he's just so racist, he's outraged. I remember when, when Mitt Romney ran and everybody told us, oh, my God, you know, you don't want to elect Mr. Bain Capital. He's a vulture capitalist. I mean, we just can't do it. We just can't do it this time. I mean, I know Barack Obama has upset us, but there's no way, there's no way. And every year you have this thing. And what, what I would say is that this year I'm just, I'm just not running. This year I'm just not running away from, from Trump. I, I understand what he's speaking to. I understand, I understand the racial undertones because of a lot of stuff he said about, you know, Mexican-Americans, a lot of things he said about, you know, uh, undocumented immigrants, a lot of things he said about, you know, Muslims in this country. I understand all of that. But the, the, the Trump is really saying in public what most politicians, not just Democrats, are saying behind closed doors. So I'm not necessarily going to going to run to Trump or to punish Trump for saying for saying out loud what most people say behind my back. I'm just not. Mhm. Mhm. Uh, we've we've got only a few minutes before we have to take a break, and uh, before you leave, um, Yvette, I do want to take this one call. He's a privilege. He 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 has privilege on this show. Alpha of the Alpha Show is on the line. Good evening, sir. Good evening, Janice. Good evening to um, Mr. Robbins and uh, your your guest, uh, Yvette. Uh, I don't disagree with the analysis of Hillary Clinton. I don't disagree with the analysis of a Barack Obama. What I do disagree with is one thing. Let Donald Trump run the country. Why not just let down? If Hillary Clinton, and she is, she's guilty of everything you all have said. And her husband was just guilty. I mean, from prisons to Wall Street, uh, lap dogs, the whole nine yards. My question remains the same, and it has remained the same for years. Where are you going? Where are you going? And the mere fact that the Green Party is the Green Party. Oh, uh, I was the 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 lady. Uh, what's her name? Jill Stein. Yeah. Now, about three days ago, I ran across an article on her. Uh, there was something about her that and that told me she was the Green Party candidate. Uh, the people who are at this point. Not so necessarily bashing Hillary Clinton, but basically having their say about who she really is and what she's really done. And it all boils down to the lesser of two evils. Like it boiled down to the lesser of two evils with uh, Obama and Hillary and, and Obama and um, McCain and Obama and Mitt Romney. It's the lesser of two evils. This is what our our political system... Well, well, you know, Alpha, after a while you get tired of choosing the lesser lesser devil. After a while you get tired of doing that. You're right. And and you know, know, the, the other thing is that, in my mind, Ted Cruz is much more dangerous 
than is Donald Trump. <laughs> well, why won't you believe one thing? They are both so dangerous that if they, you, you think the water's bad in Flint, Michigan. Well, if either one of them became president, it would be, everything would be bad. Ask the water in Flint, Michigan. Because they I, don't I get, get I, I get the point of where you're going to go. And, you know, my position on all of this is that our community has never righted itself, has never been empowered by who is the president. Our empowerment exactly. is, is significantly more important at local and state levels, and that's, that's where that's where Alvarez and Genty, uh, their ouster, just based on two cases, that proves that voting is important. The, well, the other I'll part worry. of it is that we have an opportunity to correct some things in the Senate, and that's another reason for voting. But the at the other point, why, I mean, we're always facing the devil uh, at the nas- at the federal at the national level, and the other is that the, pre- the who is president is important because our government is directed by who is president. But we're not addressing the issues of who are the cabinet members. We're not addressing the issues of how efficient and competent federal agencies are. So what the hell? And I'll let. We're not addressing the issue of who's at the local level either. Alvarez, Alvarez's ouster was a was a uh, dashboard video that basically showed everyone who she was, what she was, along with Ron Emanuel, and he will suffer the same fate if they don't have uh, uh, selective uh, memory. Uh, but yeah, Black Lives Matter has made a big difference here in Chicago. I don't know about Ohio, but here it was the surge of Black Lives Matter. Yeah, yeah. Okay, she okay. Just, she, she didn't just lose in the black community. She lost everywhere. In every but, but here, except for here's the point. Here's the point. If we if we back Hillary Clinton and Yvette and Pascal come in here on this, if we back Hillary Clinton, game over. We if will never game get anything from it. If you don't back a game over, you think you're going to get some Trump or Cruz? Well, first of all, I don't believe in lesser evil voting, and I always make the argument that the people that they say are the lesser evil are usually the more effective evil. Because since you believe that they are the ones that are on your side, where they do the evil that's going to damage you the most, you don't fight them. At least when Trump or Romney or these Republicans come and you put your guard up and you realize this is the enemy. You vote for these Democrats you assume is on your side, and they implement policies that are not only as damaging as Republicans, but more so. So I don't consider them the lesser evil. I consider them the more effective evil. They get the job better than the Republicans because you sit back and clap your hands when the, while they're doing it, quite frankly. Well, Look at what they've done in Michigan with the Republican legislator and governor. Look at what they've done in Ohio. Look at what they've done in Wisconsin. Look at the over-the-top 
all to the right in each one of those states. Look at New Jersey with Democrats in charge. And look at the here in Illinois with Bruce Rauner. Well, look at Chicago with Rahm Emanuel. Rahm Emanuel is a Democrat. The whole Chicago Democratic machine is Rahm the whole Republican. Rahm Emanuel is a blue dog. But that's, still, but that's my point. Like that's a, what do you think Hillary Clinton is? What do you think Barack Obama exactly. is? Exactly. These are not progressive, left-leaning Democrats. These are centrist, privatizing, Wall Street-friendly, corporate Democrats, the same type of Democrats we've had for the last 25 years. We're not talking about voting for FDR or, 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 or LBJ here. We're talking about fighting, voting for blue dog, corporate-friendly Wall Street Democrats. This is not, you know, you know our granddaddies or grand grandmamas' Democratic Party anymore. Yeah. This is a Democratic Party that's fulfilling the exigencies and the needs of Wall Street and corporate America more effectively than Republicans are. You know, you can't serve two masters here. This Democratic Party is not interested in fulfilling the needs of the, the working class and blue-collar workers and the poor anymore. This Democratic Party is interested in courting Wall Street and finance capital. So when we say that they are the lesser of two evils, are they really? Or are they just the more effective evil because they're working under a smokescreen of our political allegiance because we assume that they're going to have our interest? Yvette, are you going to be able to stay with us much longer? No, no, I actually have to go, but I want to say one thing before I go. Um, you know, I, I, everyone keeps saying, you know, Hillary, in, in terms of what Pascal and the gentleman talk about, the more effective evil. I keep hearing from Democrats, you know, who are Hillary supporters, that Obama, that that Hillary Clinton will be able to get more things done than than Bernie Sanders. And I want people to really think about what that means because Bernie Sanders has been in, has been in the United States Senate for a very long time. It's not like he's a newbie; he doesn't know what goes on there. What they're really saying is what you're really saying, and you don't really understand that you're saying is that this woman will negotiate with them. She will yeah. give them a lot of what they want. So that's exactly. what I'm saying. And so you're really telling on yourself in the sense of that you actually believe Hillary will get things. Well, you're not saying she get things done because she has the experience. No, she doesn't. She has. She was in the Senate and then she was State Department. She doesn't. She doesn't have a, a long history of that. What you're really saying is that she's a neoliberal and she's more. She's more ideologically aligned with these people, and so they will get things done. Whereas, whereas, whereas Bernie Sanders is much further to the left, and so and so will have a stalemate. And so I don't want Hillary to get anything done. I don't want that. I don't want I don't just like Obama continually capitulating with this Supreme Court nominee. The last thing I want is a neoliberal like Hillary or Obama to get there because they are going to get things done done with the Republicans and that's a problem. Alpha, thank you for your call. It's the top of the hour. You know I got to take a break. Um this is uh Alpha of the Alpha show heard on Truthworks Network and we're hoping that the Alpha show, show comes back and you can get more of this. Thanks Alpha. It's the top of the hour Yvette Carnell. Thank you for being with us tonight and uh, thank you. uh we're hoping that you and Pascal will become a permanent part of the family. Y'all got to get it together. Have a good weekend and enjoy it, Yvette. You too. You are now one hour away from the first day of spring. Yvette Carnell, BreakingBrown.com. Make sure that you subscribe to BreakingBrown.com. Pascal Robert is going to stay with us. 646, I see you right after this break. You're listening to Our Common Ground and
Well, look at those conditions. When blacks only had 103 elected officials in 1960. I looked at the same indicators in 1990, 30 years later. Why? Because by then, the number of elected black officials in the United States had gone up from 103 to over 9,000. That is a 9,000% increase in black elected officials. I looked at the conditions of black folk there. Guess what? The conditions didn't improve for black folk with a 9,000% increase. Guess what happened? The conditions got worse. Why? Because there's no relationship between putting a black person in office and black folk getting benefits over here. Now that is something that's only peculiar to black folk. Everybody else understands the rules of quid pro quo, something for something. If I put you in the office, you owe me. And yet, election after election, black folk are called to go out and vote and get nothing in return. Now, I speak in Waterloo, Iowa, in December, right before the water, before the, the, the uh, Iowa vote, and I was a keynote speaker out there. And they asked me to Dr. Black, they said, Dr. Anderson, of all these candidates running, which one would you support? I said, not one. I wouldn't give one of them the time of day. And they said, why? It's because none of them promising me anything. Why am I going to go take off work and go vote for somebody and get nothing? My mother taught me as a small child, don't play in any game that you can't win in. Why am I going to... Stay with us. We'll be back with Yvette Cornell of BreakingBrown.com and Pascal Wilbur of the Black Agenda Report. This is our common ground. Hi, I'm Venus Williams. You know, I heard recently that the two main reasons for not getting an annual mammogram are limited access and fear. I know that there are low-cost and even free screenings at some hospitals and clinics, and I've even heard of mobile mammogram units in some areas. Talk about service. Look, I know getting a screening is not as exciting as shopping, but life is for living. So take the first step to breast health. Get the mammogram. For more information, please visit BreastCancerAwareness.com. The I Declare Show, real, raw, right now, Tuesdays, 9 p.m., The I Declare Show, with India Declare. She brings it real, raw, and right now. The home of real, raw, right now, talk media, and indeed, as we always say, I declare it. India Declare, real, raw, and right now. I Declare, Tuesdays, 9 p.m., Blog Talk Radio, the I Declare Show. No dickety, no doubt. Play on, play on. The Wizard of Oz is 70 years old. Today, if Dorothy were to encounter men with no brains, no heart, and no balls, she wouldn't be in Oz. She'd be in Congress.
their children are killing frogs. Poor dumb rednecks rolling logs. Tired old ladies kissing dogs. I hate the human love of that stinking mud. I can't use it. Trying to make it real compared to what. Come on, baby. You're listening to Our Common Ground with Janice Graham. Transforming truth to power, one broadcast at a time. And we do appreciate your listenership and your support of Our Common Ground. For those of you who are new to us, you can go to our Facebook page and follow us and know what's going on on Our Common Ground. Tonight, uh, we have uh, been talking with Yvette Carnell of BreakingBrown.com, and um, she has had to... Go spring it up. So we are here with Pascal Robert of the Black Agenda Report, and we thank Alpha of the Alpha Show at TruthWorks Network for joining us and chiming in on Flash Black, America making it clear again. Pascal, let me ask you about, and and I'm so sorry, Yvette, because something Yvette and I were having a conversation, and one of the things we kept asking is, what what are black people supposed to do in the body politics? Well, I think the most important thing for black people need to do is that they have to define what their economic and political interests are based on where they are relative to the economic system. The majority of black people are poor and working class, and I think part of the problem that we've had is that our politics are not rooted in the issues of the poor and working class in the black community. We've had members of our community work as brokers for the traditional mainstream Democratic Party, as we said earlier, to get their patronage, their fat back, or their 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 largesse without concerning the needs of the you know the working class in our community. And I think that what needs to be done is that we need to, as you've been saying for quite a while, Janice, get people the political education or bakerize them so they focus on their local politics, who is running for their school board. Who is running for mayor? Who is running for the district attorney or the state attorney general's office in the local community? And we have to provide the political education for our members of the black community at the ground level, so that they are able to know how to effectively leverage their politics locally and then work up to the state and into the federal level. As long as we have this kind of brokerage model, and what do we mean by the brokerage model? The brokerage model is basically the traditional model of politics that you and I know exists in the black community, but we have these individuals who are representatives or brokers of interests of black people to the ruling class and you know our Negro whisperers, as Yvette likes to call them, who speak to the issues of the black community, but they don't do so for the benefit of the majority of the black community. They do so for them to assure or secure their position relative to the power elite and the ruling class. And that model is something that we've had for over 100 years. It has failed us consistently, and as long as we are not rooting the politics of the black community in the economic condition that most black folk live, most black folk are not college educated, less than 20% of black people have a college degree. Most black folk are working class. Black people are traditionally the most unionized member of the labor segment in this country. So we have to deal with black labor and black workers where they are. Now, we are in a moment in capitalism because of the rise of technology, because of the new gig economy where we have temporary workers, where labor is being rendered obsolete by capitalism. We are moving to a post labor economy. So what does that mean for 
for black labor? Where are what exactly can we leverage as a community if our workers are being basically re- rendered redundant and we have such high levels of unemployment and we're not having reemployment educational training in the black community? Who is talking about how exactly do we leverage black workers or how do we create a wor- viable black working force in the 21st century economy? What are the avenues that are open to us when we're moving to a place where blue-collar jobs are moving to robotics? They're being offshored by trade deals like NAFTA and the TPP. Who are who are making the arguments to the political power brokers to let them know, listen, we need to have a, a, some kind of massive New Deal 2.0 for the black working class and poor to increase and lift them out of poverty the same way the New Deal did for white folk? Who are, Who's making those pleas? Who's making that argument? Who is asking what are the contracts being doled out in my local municipality and how are they affecting black businesses, black contracting firms? How are we assuring that we have a fixed percentage of black workers who are getting job, jobs on the local construction sites? Who or who exactly are making those demands? It's not those black power brokers who are negotiating for their piece of fatback or their piece of, of largesse or their piece of uh, a patronage. And that model is the part of the problem. The fact that we have since the civil the Voting Rights Act have over 10,000 elected officials in the black community that have been risen to power, and yet now we have the worst child poverty rates in 40 years, basically is a safe, it's a safe statement that the electoral political exercise of African Americans in the post-civil rights area has kind of been a failure. I mean, that's a very sad thing to say, but besides having a few black faces in high places, what have we gotten for our... 50 years of voter participation in this country as a people? And I think that's a question that's worth asking. I would like to hear your thoughts if you have any. Well, one of the things I think that um, that we have to do is we have to look at new strategies uh, for uh, black political empowerment. And that has to do with our that has to do with the power that we have and the authority that we have as consumers. The other is that we have to be constantly on the watch. We have to be in the game. We have to know what our end game is. And I think that we fail on every point in that way. Now, what do I mean by that, Pascal? I mean that we have to start using our money. We have to stop being beggars and start being igniters. And we have some, there are some ways in which to do it. Um, <clears throat> first of all, I like the idea of we have the first stage has to be the reckoning, as you, as you call it. You have written about it, you have talked about it, and that is we've got to call out the black misleadership. We've got to say to them, you have been sitting on the deck. The ship has been sinking, and you haven't had the gall, the courage, the bravery, or the inclination to even ring the goddamn bell. We've got to do that. We've got to stop supporting people who support our dis- those things which are in our disinterest, those things which destroy the foundation that those 50 years have built. We've got to go to a caller, Pascal. 646, you're on the air. Thank you for your call. You're talking with 
Our Common Ground and Pascal Robert. Yeah, yeah, how are you, BJ? This is Jay. Hey, Jay, how are you? Good. You know, Brother Pascal, you know, does such great work, man. I, I mean, this brother gives probably some of the best analysis on 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 talk radio. You you need your own show, brother. Seriously. You you gotta give the people at least an hour to a week, man, so maybe we could get our minds right because it seems like we as a people are really going backwards because of this this clown in in, in office. I I mean to nominate someone like he did to the Supreme Court when he could have nominated a black woman and like you said earlier, get the base up and motivated just goes to show that the man I think is a truly a Republican and is coming from his white mother's side and it's just leaking out every single day up until the time he gets out of office. You know, so, so I mean, we really need well, to... His, wait, 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 let me stop you, Jay, because his mother did better missionary work in Malaysia than he's doing missionary work in the black community. So well, let's not well, say it came from it. This is a slick politician who understands that he can say on one hand that we are his base, but on the other hand, behave as though we are not. Now, I think that I think what we need to really find out, and I think people need to start looking into this. What is going to be his reward when he gets out of office? What is he going to get in return for all of these dastardly deeds that he's doing? Because it seems to me that he's going to stay in Washington for what they say. Is he going to be able to command the type of fees that Hillary Clinton was getting from the Goldman Sachs and places like that? Because let's remember, when Bill Clinton got out of office, him and his wife became very, very rich individuals. If I'm not mistaken, they were in debt once they got out of the White House because of that Monica Lewinsky scandal that was going on. And in a short couple of years, they became very rich. Now, I don't think it may happen here in America for Obama, but maybe over in Europe and in someplace else, he may be able to make that money. But, but we need to get down to, to this. What are we as a people of color going to do once this fix is put into place? Because you're dealing with two things here. Donald Trump becoming the president, which seems more and more likely because I don't think black women are going to support Hillary Clinton. And number two, okay, let's say that Hillary Clinton comes and becomes the president. What is going to happen to us as a people? Because I don't think she's never going to do anything for us because I don't think we're giving to her what we've given to um, Obama in regards to support because black people are just not motivated. 
Let's get a response from Pascal Robert of the Black Agenda Report. Okay, Jay, thanks for calling in, brother, and I appreciate the kind words. Thank you very much. I always appreciate hearing from you. you. You're a loyal listener to whenever I'm on different radio programs. In terms of what happens to Obama uh, after after his presidency, it's a very good question. And I've talked to um, various writers at Black and Gender Report. I talked to Glenn Ford about this. And I actually think that Obama will be very financially uh, well taken care of because he has the capacity to do something as one individual that we have not had really a maybe ever, he is single-handedly able, as the first black president, to neutralize black dissent at the drop of a dime or, or calm down any kind of kind of radical black political or reaction to any type of oppressive force the state doles out simply by the fact of him being able to leverage his symbolic importance to the black community. So what happens is that he kind of becomes like a one-man black misleadership class in that he single-handedly becomes the ability, the, the spokesperson for the political consciousness of the black community. So to the power elite, he's going to be very valuable because he kind of individually can be used as the frame of reference for when he becomes like the one-man Negro whisperer, if you will. Well, President Obama, what do you think needs to happen with the black community? Well, President Obama, why do you think that? And in other words, he becomes the single force of echoing what black political and social sentiment is, and because we gave over 97% of our voter support to him, it, it, it becomes legitimizes. Also, I think through initiatives like My Brother's Keeper, he will also be able to tap into the youth, the next generation of black, particularly black males and black children, in a way where he kind of creates a certain loyalty to this kind of privatizing, Wall Street-friendly black male image and produce almost a kind of army, an Obama-esque army of, uh, in that image to take you know, the future of black leadership in that kind of privatizing neoliberal direction. And we use this word neoliberal, and we need to define this for our community. Neoliberalism is really just a fancy word for privatization. When your government gives up the local water supply to private corporations, that's neoliberalism. When your government is talking about taking Social Security and privatizing it, that's neoliberalism. When your government is taking your public schools and using private charter, charter schools and taking those services to private corporations, that's neoliberalism. So neoliberalism is a concept that is basically a fancy academic word to explain something that's happening in communities of color all over America, where goods and services that were once delegated by the government are being taken by the government and given over to the private sector to manage. And Obama's presidency has been the poster child for the neoliberal presidency. And this agenda is actually cannibalizing America because what it does is that you still pay taxes, but a private company is, is fulfilling your services, but they have no allegiance to you, and you can't vote them out if they're not fulfilling your needs, but they still are controlling your, your goods and services, and when they cut their budgets or cut their services, you still suffer, but you still pay taxes. So it's almost this kind of cab cannibalistic form of capitalism that is, is, is spreading throughout the country, and the sad reality is that the, the political party that has been the most effective at implementing neoliberalism in the last 25 years have been the Democrats, because they are the most pro-Wall Street, pro-privatizing segment of the political system over the last 25 years because they have decided to court the financial services industry as a means to 
basically economically subsidize themselves and function in the political environment in this country. So I think that Obama, on the domestic front, will fulfill a very important role. Internationally, in terms of foreign policy, I think he has, he still has a lot of appeal that he could be used for to demobilize in Africa. I think that he could be very effective in terms of spreading international imperialism on the African continent, in brown countries in the Caribbean. The, the, the way in which Obama can be deployed in a post-presidency is endless. And I do believe that he will be very well compensated, and I do believe that his presence will serve as a danger and a threat to people of color for quite a long time. He's still a young man. He's still got a lot of life to live. And I think the way he will leverage his former presidency is something that we really need to be on the guard for. Hey, Jay, thank you for your call. You may, you brought up some interesting ideas and things for us to think about. But one of the things, uh, Pascal, that I'm concerned about is that it's this repeat and repeat of asking what is the president going to do for us? What will this president do? Who will they be? Who will it be? You know, and I, I do want to let our audience know that next week Nina Turner, uh, who is part of the Bernie Sanders campaign, will be with us here at Our Common Ground. Um, and uh, we'll be talking with her about uh, a number of things having to do with the Bernie Sanders candidacy. But, Pascal, one of the things that is becoming disturbing is that we're asking, what is a president going to do for us? And the bottom line is, and I love uh, if any of you ever came to the show on time, if you would hear my opening, um, one of the things we ask is it's not what the White House will do, it's what we will do. What are we going to do? And I am a, a, a huge follower of the principles of Ella Baker, that we have to organize, educate, and then agitate. You cannot tell me that Anita Alvarez was not very nervous in her campaign to to retain her seat as a, a prosecutor in Chicago because of what Black Lives Matter and other members of the community had organized around a single purpose, and that purpose was, you got to go. You offended us. You insulted us. You are maintaining a criminal justice system that is in our disinterest, and you got to go. The other question is, and we're going to take a break, and when we come back, we're going to spend the next half hour talking about it. And I'm going to, um, I'm glad Alpha is holding on because I'm going to ask Alpha to come in on this. Is that we've got to get out of the the mind that all of us have to do the same thing. We have to think the same way. Now, when it comes to electoral politics, we might have to have some umoja. Uh, some unity. But on other things that we've got to have people on every front, the economic front, the education, the Our Common Ground Voice, uh, Zakia Jabbar, I am so proud of this woman, this young woman who decided that what she was going to work on was e justice and fairness and equality for black children 
in the school, public school systems in Ohio, and she is having some major victories in that regard. That's the kind of thing, Pascal, that we have got to do. I'm telling you all, you need to go to work on Monday. Well, I'm not going to work on Monday because it's going to be a snowstorm in Boston, and thank God for it. Uh, uh, but we need to begin to strategize on every front. What is our social service system doing for, one, gifted children in our, in our educational system and in the social service system? Uh, I don't know if any of you saw it, but in some damn state um, uh, in Michigan, a state representative is now proposing a plan in the legislature that foster children in Michigan would use their state-funded clothing allowance only in thrift stores. In another state, we have uh, major legislative uh, initiatives where uh, per persons who see receive federal financial uh, assistance would not be able eligible to own a car. If you own a car, which mo a lot of homeless people live in their cars, if you own a car, you are ineligible to receive state funds to maintain your family. What the hell? Who are these people, these Neanderthals? Uh, and when we come back from this break, we're going to talk about that. The other thing that I want to talk with you, Pascal, about in the next half hour is to get your take on uh, the black progressives versus the black radical left and what that means in our politics. You're listening to Our Common Ground. I'm Janice Graham, and we are so glad to have you with us tonight. I think that it's very difficult to have faith in Hillary Clinton when she receives money from the GEO, which, which sustained the detention centers for precious immigrants, incarcerated them unjustly. I don't see how one could make the case that somehow uh, you've got a candidate that has the kind of integrity that we want. There's no doubt indeed that uh, uh, Bernie Sanders can win because he recognizes he's a politician that needs a social movement behind him. He is a thermostat. He shapes the climate. Hillary's a thermometer. She just registers and reflects the climate. We need somebody who's shaping the way Occupy shaped the discourse around wealth inequality, the way Black Lives Matters shaped the discourse around vicious legacies of white supremacy as it related to the repressive apparatus of the nation state in regard to this trigger happy policing going on with our precious young brothers and sisters. The people's on my block, I'm as real as can be. Word is born. Taking moves never been my thing. So, Teddy, pass the word to your again, Chauncey. I'll be sending the call. Let's stay around 3.30. Queen Pen and Black. Transforming truth to power, one broadcast at a time. I dare not. So I'm not asking you for the truth. I know the truth. So what I'm asking you is, what is your end game? And now back to Janice. Because our society is only as strong as all its individuals. The United Negro College Fund has helped educate thousands of doctors and researchers, but we need more. Thousands of architects and engineers, but we need more. 
thousands of teachers and biologists, but we need more. And when disease, injustice, pollution, poverty, and countless other problems threaten to pull us apart, we had better educate every single person who has the potential to solve our problems. And to educate more people, we need more of your help. Give to the United Negro College Fund. With so much at stake, a mind is a terrible thing to waste. The I Declare Show. Real. Real. Raw. Raw. Right now. Tuesdays, 9 p.m. The I Declare Show. With India Declare. She brings it. Real, raw, and right now. The home of Real Raw Right Now Talk Media. And indeed, as we always say, I declare it. India Declare. Real, raw, and right now. I Declare. Tuesdays, 9 p.m. Blog Talk Radio, the I Declare Show. To our common ground with Janice Graham, transforming truth to power, one broadcast at a time. And we thank you for being with us here tonight at our common ground. I know your Saturday nights, long time ago, used to be different. You know, used to be backing up on the one nation under under the groove. But this is the One Nation Under a Groove now. Thank you. Our number is 646, uh, no. Our number is 347-838-9852. And this is our common ground, and we welcome your calls. We welcome you to call somebody and to say, I'm on our common ground. Come join me on our common ground. Because in just six months, our common ground is going to be five nights per week. And by that time, we hope over at TruthWorks Network, we'll have the Alpha Show back. We'll have Harreen Freeman talking about money and credit. We will have Yvette Cornell and Pascal Robert running the show. Uh, I don't know what they're going to call it. <laughs> I'll come up with something. But we do thank you for being with us. I'm coming up with something by tomorrow because um, – I'm going to be enjoying the snowstorm, and if we only get two inches, I'm still staying home saying it's a snowstorm. You got that. Thank you again for being with us, and please help us in our effort to maintain black truth on our common ground by calling your friends, emailing your friends, following us on Facebook, joining us on our Ning site, which is a community forum where you can have your own page and talk about whatever you want to talk about, put up videos and pictures, but no cats, right at ourcommongroundtalk.ning.com. And don't forget to bookmark our website, ourcommongroundtalk.com. You can also find Alpha. You know that we have five different 
we have five different um, Facebook pages. One is our reparations reader. One is working while black, which has to do with employment discrimination. One that has zero tolerance for the school-to-prison pipeline, all kinds of information and programs and alerts. And so you can find all of that at our main Facebook page, Our Common Ground, OCG Talk. Thank you again for being with us. And Pascal Robert, thank you for being such a wonderful reporter and you being a good host, um, co-host here tonight. Uh, I feel like we're on a two-legged stool now that Yvette has left us, but we can carry on. Before we went to break, one of the things that I wanted to get into is this whole idea about where the progressive black, who are the progressive blacks uh, in our body politics, and who is the black radical left. And I do want to alert people to an article that you can find on counterpunch.org. It uh, is an article by uh, Paul Street that I found very interesting where uh, – and. The name of the article is in, in in defense of disruption. Did you see that this Pascal? I have not read that article yet, but I think I saw it posted. I haven't read it, but if you, you um, say it's pretty good, I so I'll check it, it out. Yeah, I found it when I was uh, going through my my usual um, review of what was on um, Counterpunch, and for those of you uh, that. Um, would like to read it, I'm posting it in our, the link in our chat room, which is one of the things that you should, why people should join us in our chat room. But one of the things that he talks about is this whole idea that we have to disrupt. And that's what I mean by we have to edu organize, educate, and agitate. Um, so who, when we when we talk about our politics, we have the progressive blacks, and of course you got these black people who are supporting Donald Trump, and my head hurts when I even think about it. And then you have the black radical left, who are in debate about what she, what we should do. What's your what's your take on all of that? Well. To, to basically clarify what these terms mean and what they are is that these are, are representations of various political traditions that have actually existed in the black community for quite a long time. When we talk about the black radical tradition, and I'll, I'll put, be honest, I consider myself a student and an acolyte and a believer of the black radical tradition. The black radical tradition is a tradition that has been in black politics going back to the Colored Farmers Alliance in the 1800s, going back to the black communists of the early 20th century, going back to uh, Du Bois in his socialist phase, Paul Robeson, uh, 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 C.L.R. James, uh, uh, James Lee Boggs, the League of Revolutionary Workers of Detroit. The black radical tradition about the Black Panthers, uh, the, the Malcolm X grassroots movement, this is the segment of the black community that is rooted in basically what I call three things. 
anti-capitalism, anti-imperialism, anti-racism, that they have been at the forefront of challenging the way capitalism uh, affects black people in this country and have demanded a restructuring of the way in which the economy works to be inclusive of the needs and demands of the black community. So the black radical tradition is not something that is new. It is not something that started with the Black Panthers. It is not something that started in the 60s. It is a tradition that is over 100 years old within the black community that is rooted in challenging those three things, capitalism, imperialism, and racism. What we would call black progressives, I would say, is the more kind of liberal, kind of uh, uh, anti-racist strain of black political thought that could be more... uh, uh, a better example of that would be the, tradi- the, the long civil rights movement, the NAACP, the Urban League, the organizations that have rooted their politics not so much in challenging capitalism and imperialism, but basically focusing on how racism and a slight you know, concern about poverty in the black community, but mostly they are more vested in addressing racism because their analysis is based on the belief that racism is the problem of black people. The reason why I personally tend to be one who is more in favor of the black radical traditions analysis is because my personal belief is that racism is a function of capitalism, which is something that both Malcolm X and Martin Luther King came to agree with towards the end of their lives, is that racism is a mechanism that exists exists in the United States as a means of using blackness as a proxy for poverty because capitalism requires that a certain segment of the society be rendered as redundant surplus labor. And because we live in a majority white society, it is more socially useful to have a larger portion of black people rendered as that redundant surplus labor in order to keep the illusion of the function of capitalism working in the mind of most of the white citizenry in this country. So racism has a specific utility and function in the capitalist system in this country. And the way there is a distinction between what we call the black liberal or progressive or or the black radical tradition is that the black radical tradition realizes that as long as we do not neutralize the function of racist capitalism in American society or amend it in a way in which it includes, includes the function of black people in the political economy, things will not change. While the black progressive or liberal is more interested in finding remedies that change the function of racism exclusively. And for me, the problem I have with the black progressive or liberal view is that it is not rooted in political economy, meaning how does the political reality of how goods, services, and resources are translated and transferred in this society on a material level. The black radical tradition is rooted in materialism. What is the material condition of black people? Where are black people getting their food? Who is giving them their water? Where are they getting their clothes? What is the quality of their schools? How are they able to pay their bills? What kind of jobs do they have? And for us and for myself as well, any discussion of black people and their condition that is not rooted in their material condition to me does a disservice to the reality of how black people live in this country. I hope I've done a pretty decent job of making the distinction between the two. You you made it you made it very plain, and I hope people understand the difference. The other uh, the other thing, and Alpha has joined us. The other thing that we have to really begin to examine and to institute in our thinking is that 
we have never been a significant part of establishment politics at the national level. We don't have a dog in the fight about who the cabinet is, and the cabinet is so important. When a secretary meets with his senior staff, which is your government, and says, we will do thus and so, thus and so gets done. Alpha, who are we talking about when we're talking about the black people? Well, what what you're basically saying is that, uh, well, what you're basically hoping and wishing for, or for black people to be more engaged in their economic uh, survival and the whole nine yards. When black people won't pay attention to the local politics, you can't expect them to be too savvy in national politics. And that's what we've had for how, how many how many years? How many decades? And that will continue to be the case as long as we are shackled by reality TV, entertainment TV, and religion. Because Let's talk Obama's about religion for a minute. Let's talk about religion for a minute. Um, There is no question that the black traditional institutions of religion, the churches, and we're not talking about the, the, what do you call it, for prophecy, prosperity, churches particularly, it's the body of black churches, of black religion. How... Can, how much damage are they doing, and how can we correct that? Because well, I tell you, I don't know how to talk to those people anymore. Well, financially, they're doing a great deal of damage. Financially, we put every week we put five hundred million in banks that won't lend us a dime. I mean, think about it. All the so how do we stop that? We st- how do we stop yeah, that? You are not going to stop it. They have been indoctrinated. They have an idolatry to their religion. Pascal, how are we going to stop uh, that? That's a very challenging, challenging question. The black church, now I'm a believer that that there there are several traditions in the black church. There is a radical, revolutionary tradition that has existed for a while that sadly has been dormant for quite a long time. And there's this, this, this kind of prosperity, kind of pro-capitalist, escapist version of the black church that we've been seeing growing for the last 25 and 30 years. And sadly, the black church has really been politically used, and I'm not going to get into the, the theological and the spiritual component, but the political reality is that the black church is one of the key mechanisms that is used in the black community to maintain allegiance to the status quo Democratic Party machine. Because it's not an accident that whenever you see these Democratic candidates come up, where's the first place they go to speak? It's black churches. Why is that? Why is that? It's because the role of the black church in the black community, and if we're all honest with ourselves, we know this, is that if you want to have an effect on the voting patterns of black people in most parts of the country, particularly in the South, 
the most effective place for you to make your first appearance is in the black church because the pastor has a certain way of if emphasizing a certain allegiance to these these candidates there is of course a patronage role as well you know the role of the the black minister is is an infamous trope in the history of the black community. I mean, it's not, it's not accidental that we have these figures like Reverend Jesse Jackson or, or Reverend Al Sharp, that, that we have these religious, quasi-religious leaders who become considered as black leaders. You know, all of these institutions, the black church particularly is the, they are the ground troops. They are the stormtroopers of the black misleadership class in the black community. And the, my, my goal here is not to challenge the theological, the spiritual role of the black church. I think people have the right to worship as they will. But politically speaking, the black church, unfortunately, has been the focus, the, the loci of where the traditional the patronage machine of the Democratic Party has been able to basically infiltrate into the black community to influence the political decision-making of large numbers of black people. It's not exclusively the black church. We have our membership organizations. We have our social organizations. We have a fraternal and women's organizations. We have the NAACP. We have the Urban League. We have the Links. All of these things, all of these institutions, Freemasons, uh, you know, all the lodges, all of these things, they create an ideological echo chamber in the black community around political decision-making that influence what are considered acceptable political choices. And one of the things that needs to be done, if we're serious about talking about transforming black politics, is that we have to find a way to either transform that echo chamber or neutralize it. So when you're asking how do we change the, the, the deleterious or the damaging economic role of the black church, that is something that requires radical political education. We literally need to go to these communities, go to these parishes, go to these congregations, and talk to these people about how is your faith influencing your politics and your economics. And that's going to be a radical battle. That's an internal struggle in the black community. That is a calling out that we have never done. I don't think there has been really anyone that has effectively really tried to take on the political role of the black church in the black community because it is such a powerful institution in the black community. Black people are more religious than any other constituency in this country. Over 60% of black people in the United States consider themselves to be regular, regular church-going people. How do you try to find a way to change the political function of an institution that has such a significant control over the theological, spiritual, and even political ideology of a people. And this is a major challenge. This is not some this is a serious serious thing. I don't I, I, this might sound kind of pessimistic. I don't think we can change the political trajectory of black people in this country until we have a radical transformation of the role of the black church. I'll be very honest. I, I absolutely agree, and we're running out of town, uh, out of town, out of time. Um, uh, we may also be re being run out of town, but um, Alpha, thank you for joining us tonight, and we can't wait for you to come back on Friday nights at TruthWorks Network with the Alpha Show. We miss your analysis, you much, yeah. and 
and we we you know I can't wait. And Pascal Robert, your brilliance and your analysis and your finger on the pulse of it all is just such a treasure. I want everybody to stick around for a minute. I've got a few things to say before we go. And we thank Yvette Carnell of BreakingBrown.com for being with us. Please subscribe to her uh, website and get the kind of analysis and news that you need. And Pascal Robert at the Black Agenda Report, um, subscribe. We cannot do this, this transformation. This We cannot bring this reckoning without support of independent thought and analysis, that which is not driven by the corporatists and by capitalism in this country. Capitalism has always been a benchmark of white supremacy in America. I really do thank all of you for being with us tonight. Uh, Next week at Our Common Ground, we are going to be calling the names of 300 Black Strong that went to Washington, D.C. this week, challenging police and community violence against our children. And we thank our our Common Ground witness from the bridge and voice, Ruby Sales and the Spirit House Project, for making it all happen and taking the leadership on carrying the coffins to the Capitol today and holding hearings of the families who have lost children to police brutality and violence uh, in this country. Uh, Next week at Our Common Ground, Nina Turner. Uh, You know her. She's an Our Common Ground voice, and she is calling the clarion ring on the Bernie Sanders campaign, and we'll we'll be so happy to have her back with us again. For all of you in the chat room, thank you for joining us, and don't forget that you have got to have a, you have a personal stake in this. I do this as my rent for being in this planet. You and everybody has got to embrace, has got to command has got to have an end game. Our end game is to bring you as much insight, black truth, ideas, and notions of justice and fairness and understanding the system and the establishment of those pockets of injustice which we face every day. Thank you so very much for being with us. We'll see you next week. I'm sitting out on the, uh, waiting for the snowstorm, and we hope that you will do something in the lives of black people to make it so uh, at, uh, at where you are. Because as um, Pascal Robert just said, it's got to be where we sleep, where we eat, how we educate our children in this in this country in our community that's where it is
Thanks to all our callers and listeners tonight at Our Common Ground. We hope you'll come back next Saturday at 10 p.m. I'll be listening for you. And thanks to Pascal Rivera and Yvette Cornell for joining me as my special co-host tonight. As we closed, don't forget the urgency of our times. And, and Barack Obama is hes the head of the empire. That, well, well, he's the figurehead of the empire. He's the figurehead of the empire. It's like Malcolm said, he, he's, it's like Malcolm says, he, he's there to appease the masses, to make them feel good for those black people, and there are a lot of them in this country, that what they want is white folks' acceptance. That's what they want. And he represents that for them. Cory Booker represents that for him. All these folk that will bend over and they'll go fight and kill a stranger because they want to be accepted by this monster that we live in. That's what we got to fight. But we got to organize our community in the same way that the Tea Party, I have a lot of respect for folk that they believe what they believe. Now, I know they believe that the government's giving niggas everything they want. That's basically it. They mad, you know, we, those lazy black folk. It's like the slave master always thought the slave picking the cotton out in the field was lazy. He was sitting on the porch, but the slave was lazy. Who are you? When you don't know, when you should have done, but you didn't. When you should have, but you don't. When you can't find, won't ask, can't say what you want. Who are you? When you recognize that you have accepted, tolerated, and accommodated stuff from them or him or her that has diminished yourself. Just who are you?